0: Welcome to episode 43 of the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. The track you're hearing in the background was a video clip that I tried to integrate into episode 43 unsuccessfully. So the first minute of the show that you'll hear will be me talking about this clip that doesn't really exist. But I'll embed this somewhere on my website maybe in the show notes for this episode at the uh, website www.creative-writing.com so if you want to check out the video that you're missing here go there alright thanks and let's finish out the last few seconds in peace and harmony huh Hello everybody and welcome to episode 43 of the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast. I'm your host, Oofty Goofty. On tonight's show, we have a few things lined up for you. It's maybe not even tonight. Maybe it's today. Who knows? When are you listening to this? The future? All right. Of course you are. Well, on today's show, we've got some racing news coming on up. We've got some technology. We'll talk about some roads. That sounds interesting. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, well, that little video clip that uh, started out there. That was from last year's Hell on Wheels Hot August Nights 2015 uh, I went to 2016, but uh, it's on live stream. So if you want to check it out, go there and look for it. It's uh, xlivestream.com forward slash expo center. I think you can still catch it. So I didn't bother wasting my batteries recording it. It's it's, uh, it's all there, and it's even got commentary and uh, much better footage from many different angles than one schmuck standing in the crowds with a bunch of cameras. So, all right, check that out if you ever get the green and flat track is uh you know for whatever reason a lot of people uh MotoGP gets a hell of a lot of press and exposure motocross um several different countries does supercross arena cross all that stuff huge sponsors behind it and uh Uh, Sadly, Moto America, American Road Racing, and American Flat Track Racing, which are like the two purest forms of American motorcycle motorsport besides, I guess, drag racing and hill climbs, right? Those uh, don't get very much exposure. So, luckily, luckily... There's been a resurgence in flat track. And uh, so I really thought that that would be a cool clip to show there at the beginning. And speaking of, speaking of, number 42, Brian Smith. I don't know if you guys all, you know, kept uh, tabs on what's been happening in the flat track world. But he was penalized a couple races ago. On um, September 13th, the AMA announced that an independent appeal board had uh, listened to his case, he was disqualified after the August 20th race at the Central New York Half Mile, which is uh, round 12 of 14. Uh, is this? Yeah, I think this this is 14 or 15 rounds this year. So, heck, he got disqualified, you know, out of one of the last rounds. And, and uh, basically, there was a technical protest uh, concerning the rear wheel. I won't get into it, but basically... He followed up with the AMA and the AMA compliance and all this stuff, and everybody said that it was okay. And Jared Meese protested it; he got uh, disqualified, so none of his points. And they recently reversed his appeal. He was in he was he was closing in. I forget if he was in first place at the time or not, but uh, you know, it was basically a points lead all year long between him and Jared Meese. And since they reversed his disqualification, he is now two points ahead of Mies going into the final, which is going to be at the Ramsboro Winery um, September 25th, I believe. So, yeah, that is pretty darn amazing, and it makes for a very exciting... um, You know, what, what was in the bag, basically, for Mies is now going to be basically... Uh, you know, come down to the last race, which is just what you love to see in, in any type of racing. But yeah, really cool. Let's see what round that's going to be. That's going to be uh, September 25th at the Ramsbury Winery, and it's going to be a mile, which they're both really good at. So yeah, it'll be it'll be pretty cool to see exactly uh, what happens with that. So I am pretty excited about that. So 12, 13, so it's 14, 14. Um, so yeah, to get disqualified like two uh, two races from the end of the season, I mean, that must have been like a heartbreaker. So at any rate, that's pretty cool in my eyes because I'm a big fan of Brian Smith. I'm a big fan of Jared Meese too. The guy's super talented. Him and Brad Baker seem to run up front all the time and Flying Brian comes in on the miles and, and gets uh, cleans up a little bit. So it'll be pretty exciting to see. See those two titans of the sport go head to head. So yeah, hope you like that little video clip. I hope it comes out and I don't just sound like an idiot talking about a video clip that doesn't even show up. Uh, And then at any rate, um, coming up on October 8th at the Paris Auto Speedway, there's going to be the Paris Auto Half Mile going on there. Uh, Ivy League Flat Track helping to put that on. And that is going to be a pretty exciting event and Law Tigers and all those guys Rolling Sands Design everybody coming together to grow the sport and not only flat track but the hooligan class and it's just really been fun to watch all that stuff grow so that's uh, the first thing I wanted to get off my list Um, in some other racing news we have KOTS coming up this weekend do you know what KOTS is? Uh, I didn't know what KOTS was a while ago I'd heard of it, but I wasn't didn't know what it was. And uh talked to some people you may have noticed this year that, that know what Cots is and participated in it. So I thought it'd be kind of a treat, since it's coming up, to talk to the founder, Gerald McGrath. Alright, Gerald, so uh welcome to Creative Writing. And uh can you tell us uh what made you decide to develop Cots? Oh, oh yeah. I thought people needed a good place to sleep, you know, something comfy, not the floor, not a rug, you know. Yeah, but what about the racing? I don't know about racing. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Cots. You started Cots, right? Yeah, Cots. My biggest customers are schools and prisons. Go government, right? Government support? Um... I don't think we're talking about. I think we're switch tracking here. I'm talking about King of the Streets, KOTS, down in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Oh, I, I developed cots like you know camping the the kind that you sleep on, the kind that little kids pee in all the time in in the kindergarten. Oh, uh. All right, so King of the Streets was supposedly started by Trent Eckhart. And Steve Gillespie, they're promoters actually of one of the original no prep races in the country, the King of the Streets. It's held at Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove, Wisconsin. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I got this from, shy t- from uh, dragbike.com, Shytown's King of the Streets. I don't know why it's Shytown, Chicago. It is not in Wisconsin. Last time I checked, but whatever. At any rate, yeah, the it's pretty cool uh, looking at the rules for the bikes. Let me tell you, give you a rundown. Um, let me take a brief pause here and do some very unprofessional, unedited stalling. So you know, the other day when I was talking about uh, sunny, it is. Well, it's been in the 70s. So, so cold. So cold for California. So here we go. Here's the 2016 COTS rules in a nutshell. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. They have the COTS Extreme, which is a new class, and there's only one rule. No wheelie bars. Anything goes. It's eighth mile. Probably they don't want it to to be a quarter mile because they don't want you to get up to 7,000 miles an hour and not be able to stop. Um, It's an 80-20 payout between the winner and the runner-up and 16-bike max. So that's pretty cool. I mean, it'd be kind of fun to see what's going to be going on there. Uh, The Cot Senior Bikes is the uh, True Hand Clutch. So I'm guessing no pneumatic shifters. Um, Dot tires, no wheelie bars, quarter mile. They have a pretty good payout. The purse is pretty you know, it's an eighty twenty if they get to a certain number of bikes, but if not, it's five thousand bucks to the winner and a thousand dollars to the runner up plus the um, the payout. You know, they add twelve hundred dollars to the purse at uh, sixteen bikes and, and pay 80 eighty twenty, and that that includes the the eighty twenty payout. So uh, that's a pretty good little purse there for the senior bikes. The junior bikes has a, a has to be a true hand clutch. Um, So no pneumatic shifters, DOT tire, no bars. I'm guessing no wheelie bars because that'd be hard to race a bike with no handlebars, right? And the bike must be plated. So we're talking like street bikes, probably, you know, extended swing arms. Yeah, probably okay, but, you know, nothing um, so crazy that it's not street legal anymore. Uh, They have to complete a cruise. And that was the interesting part to me. I did not know exactly what it was talking about. Um, no, none of the riders from the extreme or senior can compete in junior. You know, don't know when. That's a monopoly, folks. We're against that here in America to some degree. Um, all the junior bikes, this cruise that they have to complete is, you know, the rider has to enter on their bike fully suited during the cruise and um, you know, ride staggered like you would on the street. They can never pass the cruise leader unless the cruise leader crashes and uh, you can't stop quick enough or you can't fall behind the chase vehicle, which is either one is an automatic DQ. So that's interesting. It sounds like they got, you know, this little formation riding around a track. I I don't see where the cruise takes place, but um, it says around a track, you have to do laps. So the first lap is going to be, um, let me see here. So the first lap will be, Oh yeah. And both tires on the ground at all times, no hooligans. So just like in California, you must lane split with both tires on the ground. You got to do this cruise with both tires on the ground. Um, so I think what this does is proves that you're a street legal bike. It weeds out anybody that's like doing something like trailer queen, you know, getting their bike to the track and all this stuff and only starting it to race. So I think that's what this is weeding out. It's proving that you are a real heads-up street racer, and that's what COTS is all about. It's heads-up, uh, no-prep drag racing. So basically, you got to go to this track. Um, you got to do three fast laps at 65 miles an hour plus, then a slow lap at 25 miles an hour, then three more fast laps, then a slow lap, three more fast laps, and then a slow lap. So you're doing a 12 laps total, uh, four fast, four slow. Wait, one, two, three. I can't camp very good. So you're doing three fast and and three slow uh, segments, but 12 laps total. And then on completion of the final lap, you will convene back in the pits or like the staging lane area, idle your bike for two minutes, shut it off, and then restart it within five minutes of shutdown. Anybody that, uh, can, can restart their bike that, you know, they completed the cruise and they can race. And that's like what I'm saying. I'm guessing that they're just trying to prove that your bike is a real street bike and that it's not some trailer queen, wango tango, all this crap that doesn't run or unfit for track. You know, I'm sure you got to, uh, pass tech anyway, but then like to not be able to do the the cruise just proves that you are not a street rider. So, yeah, that sounds pretty cool, and it's it's pretty fun. I mean, it's not like any other form of drag racing where you show up with the trailer, you got, you know, all this stuff going on. It's like, you know, you get your buddies there, you go fast. <laughs> from what I've seen from the footage, too, uh, there's, like, no rules for spectating. You can stand on the track as the cars are like staging up and taking off, you can be right there, uh, their cars and bikes. And I mean, we're talking like some real gnarly vehicles, stuff that like should be blowing these people's eardrums out, but they're just like cheering and all this stuff. They probably can't hear anymore. And so whatever, you know, they're 20. And at 60, they'll just be wearing four pairs of hearing aids, a pair for their pair for their pair of hearing aids. And so basically, yeah, I mean, you can even like, sit on the hood of a car as it's like staging up and takes off down the lane. I seen guys surfing it like Teen Wolf on one of the videos. So yeah, Teen Wolf from the 80s, not Teen Wolf from like MTV now in the past few years. Yeah. So it just looks like it's all out, literally like you're out on the street, only you're in a safe environment, which is a drag strip, which I think is pretty awesome. And you win money, which is pretty awesome. So that's going down. Actually one of our uh good friends is there. He's this eight foot seven tall guy. Um he looks like a shaved Chewbacca, a little bit more handsome. His name is Stretch and he's from the uh Stock is for Subaru's podcast. And um yeah, he's there chilling with some of the people that we've had on the show, producer Steve and Nitro Steve Singsheim. So yeah, it's it's cool to see him there and uh so i hope he's having fun what up stretch that's uh pretty cool that you're you're there checking out cots and and all the good stuff that goes on it's exciting man this sounds like they do it twice a year and i mean it sounds like an environment that just would be so much fun to to see what people are bringing and what people are playing with you know hopefully there's some fire because if you play with fire you get burned All right, goofy, oh, That was it. Don't play with fire, guys. But at any rate, that really does look like a lot of fun. Next topic on our agenda is some road work. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Caltrans closed the 101 interchange in western L.A. County from Sherman Oaks on the west side to Studio City toward the east in what's known as the Valley. So if you ever watched that Nicolas Cage movie, uh, Valley Girl, you know what's up. And if you ever, like, gagged anyone with, like, a spatula, you know exactly (laughs) where this is happening. So they closed it as part of a $62 million project to repave the 101. I'm not sure they're repaving the whole 101, folks. I'm just saying, like, in L.A., County, you know, so included in the repaving project were the installation of loop detectors. Now, the loop detectors were installed on the freeway as part of the final stages of the process. And according to the Caltrans website, the loop detectors help to manage traffic in real time. The sensors are little metallic loops. And what they do is they go right. Um, I mean, they, they, they're they embedded literally in, in the pavement. And they gather data such as travel time and speed that provides real-time info regarding traffic conditions. And the Caltrans website states that the loops can count how many vehicles pass over them, which helps to determine the traffic volume, how many cars are using the freeway at what particular time. And, you know, they also calculate speeds so you can see how fast they pass over So that can help indicate traffic flow or indicate problems like a backup or accident if the loop sensors are detecting that traffic is slowing or stopping. So the project is expected to finish by this fall. And it reminds me of stuff that I was talking about way back, episode four. I keep talking about episode four um, and actually a few episodes after episode four. As well, when we we're talking about uh, vehicle to infrastructure and infrastructure to infrastructure, um, you know that sort of stuff that's that's going on with technology and using it. Now, if you look at Caltrans' website, it's pretty amazing. You can see these huge traffic maps that they have. They have a ton of cameras. News stations use the cameras. Uh, sites like SigAlert.com use the cameras, so you can actually see what traffic looks like when you are trying to check how you know, how's my commute going to be? How bad is traffic right now? Do I want to leave for work right now? Or do I just want to stay here at the Regal Beagle and throw back a few bourbons before I... Oh, wait, wait, no, no, don't do that. But at any rate, you get what I'm saying. Like these, When you look at a map and it says, like, traffic is this fast, uh, that could be a couple of things. If you're using an app like Waze or maybe even Google Maps, who I think Google bought Waze, that could be... uh, gathering data from GPS that actual commuters are sending in and then it's being processed and thrown back out there to the system. Or it can be these loop detectors and the loop sensors. Now, <clears throat> the way that it helps Caltrans is because when they see bottlenecks or they see certain areas are getting traffic at certain times of the day, they'll make some changes and they'll fund some, you know, they'll look for funding and and get funding appropriated to make changes to the roadways like they're doing right now in on the i-5 in particular they're widening the freeway to add uh one lane in each direction plus an hov which is a some people call it carpool. Some people call it high occupancy vehicle. That's what HOV stands for. So they're getting those things set up. And how do they know where they need to do this? In the old days, they used to, a dude with the clipboard used to stand out there and drop a penny in a bucket every time a car went by. And you know, after they had enough money in that bucket to uh, build a new road, they would do it. You know, add a lane. But Nowadays, they use these loop sensors to do that. And, and it actually shows them on these like live maps where stuff's going down. And so now, when they need to expand a uh, freeway here or add a freeway there, or they notice that... Uh, you know, traffic bottlenecks at a certain time of day here and here, they can kind of make these changes to ease traffic. And in California, for sure, that's a huge, huge problem. It's like, it's almost like in New York, it's part of the culture that you're just going to sit in traffic for a long time or take the, uh, the path and the, the trains and all that stuff. I'm in the cabs. I mean, it's, it's like New York's famous for that sort of stuff, but out here we're cruising with the top down, you know, in our convertible uh, must 66 Mustang or splitting lanes at 8,000 miles an hour on a motorcycle. So we can't have that. You know what I mean? Like we're totally a freeway culture here and the bigger and more urban sprawl that has like happened here in California, the more dependent people come. Become on the freeways. Um, I was just talking to listener Paul a couple of days ago. Thanks, Paul, actually, for sending me that article about robots aren't your friends. I really needed that after Tobor left. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I was talking to him, and he, you know, he's commuting left and right. He's just, you know, all over the place, slabbing it here and there, and it, it makes it convenient when you live in a vast place like California but also when there's so many damn people here and everybody needs to get somewhere fast you know it used to be the surface streets were the fastest way to get around but luckily Caltrans is using these things these loop sensors you know issuing sig alerts so you, you know not to take the freeway here and there and it's kind of making everything better so in a way big Brother is kind of helping out and stepping up and using our tax dollars to do all these cool things but it also reminded me of the crazy stuff that i was talking about the future you know where where all these things are going to integrate and caltrans may work with apps like waze or whatever people are using to get around nowadays waze and all the um the actual gps companies like rever and uh, zoo Garmin and zoomie, or I don't know, a Tom, Tom, anything that's still out there that, that uses GPS might be able to, you know, get data from these computers. And also if there's not, uh, if there's not, um, consumer input being put into that, then these loop sensors are the way to go. Now to piggyback off of this, <laughs> this is another funny thing that, uh, happens to do with the roads. And like I said, we've got tons of freeways around here, slab city. You know what I mean? California is, was, uh, just oil derricks back in the twenties or big oil and big car, um, lobby here has been for a very long time. And so it makes sense that we got a lot of roads, a lot of people and a lot of freeways and, and a lot of commuting happening. So the California energy commission is planning Uh, in 2017 on conducting several tests that could use the roadway to generate electrical energy. Now that's exciting for the future of commuting and the future of transportation. As we move away from uh, ice engines to electric engines and both or electric motors, I guess I should say in both cars and motorcycles and electricity is going to be the new, fossil fuel that they're going to charge us an arm and a leg for. They're going to find a way to do it because, oh, there's so many people using it. We can't generate enough and yada, 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 all this stuff, all this bullshit, basically. Um, So here's one way that they're planning on testing out an alternative to windmill farms and solar energy and hydroelectric everything else that we've been doing right so the project's going to provide the basis for studies in electrical energy production ideas that assemblyman mike gatto has been advocating for years and what that is is vibration oddly enough Uh, So using these small piezoelectric sensors that are embedded in the roadway, vibrations from cars traveling past could actually generate electrical power for public use. Now, the way this works is, you know, energy, a vibration is an energy. Light is a wave. Sound is a wave. Um, Energy itself is a wave, right? And it's just a wave is basically a vibration through whatever, um, you know, sound travels through air, the sound that you hear isn't actually the sound that came out of whatever, um, what you're hearing is the initial sound banging into an air molecule, banging into another air molecule, another air, until that frequency hits your ear drum. And that's basically the air molecules hitting your ear. So, I mean, it's not like a literal sound wave shoots from someone's voice. Out across into into somewhere else That would mean that there was like this power uh, What's it called Entropy floating around through the The air right So if you hold uh, Something up in between two people like a piece of glass And you scream it doesn't do anything (laughs) Right so it's not Literal energy but that Vibration is right that the vibration is what Causes it all same with a clap Same with um, You know basically a, a car tire or an engine idling or rumbling over um, the treads on a car, that slight little tiny, 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 tiny vibration uh, basically excites, excites these piezoelectric sensors. And that little vibration... Translates into a little piece of energy And that little piece of energy goes From these sensors down a wire into a bank somewhere I'm going to try and find An uh, illustration or like A some sort of graph That shows how this works And how they capture the energy from the vibrations But it's basically just like Anything else you know if you have a If you have a saw and you put it on a piece of wood And you're cutting through the wood gets hot Why does the wood get hot Basically it's because of the friction Right Or even if you just have um, something vibrating on something, it'll actually make it hot a lot of times too. And it's just because that transfer of of, uh, energy and movement. So if it's not friction and not vibration, those are like two huge ways or or heat, you know, any way to make heat can make energy, right? So blah, blah, blah. You Want me to shut up about this? Me too. God, this is annoying. At any rate, so the cars... (laughs) Um, you know basically here in California are limitless and the freeways at some, some point too so in such a car and freeway oriented state it could be a real boon to developing new elect, uh, electricity production at a time when you know petroleum mining and fracking and all this stuff like everything we're doing like this last ditch efforts to get Petroleum out of the earth and it's like, Hey man, electricity is already here. We've already had it for centuries as well. Let's just like move over to this electric vehicles are going to be the new hotbed and political and social issues coming up in the future. We've already seen, uh, cars like Tesla become very popular. Um, now there's, there's a ton more, uh, you know, big OEs coming on board I'd have to say that there's probably just as many motorcycle manufacturers or more that are electric that are available to the public. So it's pretty interesting. And give any one of the motorcycle podcasts a listen and you'll just see they've all talked to somebody in the electric field. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. And if we could do this and actually be generating stuff, I think in the future, I know somebody that works with electric vehicles. We're going to have them on the show in a little bit. And talking about wireless charging. Now, could you imagine these little piezoelectric uh, sensors creating energy on the roadsides there that you can wirelessly uh, absorb and then just keep going a bit basically like refilling your tank as you drive? And it might not fill it all the way up and it might not charge it very much, <clears throat> but it might be able to extend the range. You know what I mean? Just to get you to the next charging station or to your destination so you can plug in for the night, whatever it is. To me, it's exciting, you know what I mean? To talk about a, a, a stupid little set, a sensor in the road for like 20 minutes or however long we have been blabbing, you, it really shows you that I'm just excited about this technology. So I think it's cool. Now, the article that I originally saw this on was on abc7.com, which is KABC here in um, Southern California, LA area. And it stated that experts, quote, Experts say that a 1.5-mile stretch of just a two-lane highway can power a 1,000 homes. Now, I'm guessing that that's uh, like the five or the one-on-one, somewhere where you got a lot lot of vehicles traveling and not like, you know, the Antelope Highway or (laughs) something out in Palmdale or Lancaster where, um, you know, there's like a stretch in between cities that not a lot of people go. But at any rate... They that same article stated that these sensors are going to be installed in certain stretches of Southern California roadways as part of a test program next year in 2017 to see how much energy this is, how viable it is, you know, do all these testing. And like I said, provide the provide the basis um, through these tests that sees if this is a, a new way to generate electrical energy and fuck the homes, man. Homes. We got electricity for homes. We need it for the cars that we're going to have because uh one thing i know about commuters in california they almost spend as much time in their car as they do in their home (laughs) so uh it it makes more sense if you're gonna have these sensors in the road to just basically translate it straight back over into the cars that are driving by right i mean i know that they're not going to want to give energy away for free and and all that great stuff but at any rate i thought that was pretty cool and pretty interesting the guitar down. I was just playing some covers of ACDC. Whoa, I was pumped. Anyway, hey, welcome to the Ride Report for whatever day this is. I'll let you fill in the blanks there, but listen up. Listen up, folks. I wanted to talk about something that I've been missing out on the last couple weeks. It's not nothing major at this point, but Kimco. I'm sure you know that Kimco makes uh, quality scooters. They're actually... I think they won in the GNCC with their quads. So, I mean, you know, they're not our typical when you think of American motorcycles, even like the secondary market. A lot of people don't even think of Kimco. Um, they're not in the front of everyone's mind, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But they make a hell of a lot of scooters, all the way from 50cc up to 700cc, uh, which is pretty amazing. They've got some 125cc bikes that are they're not available in this Market for this country, but they do look pretty t- pretty tight. Butthole. Um, They got a two fifty cc cruiser. This not all that, but you know they helped Kawasaki and Team Green launch their scooter line. And a lot of times you'll find these cooperations of uh, you know with with companies, uh, especially you know like uh, Hyosung who launched their brand back in like two thousand six. I think I saw them at the motor show or two thousand seven. Um, you know they used to make motors for Suzuki forever throughout the seventies and eighties. So what's happening right now is that Kimco is helping Kawasaki, like I said, get on the road with the scooter program. And in return, Kawasaki is lending some of their aged, um, I guess you would say, product and design to Kimco. Now Kimco's got this pretty bitchin' little bike called the well, well the K pipe we know here. You know, that's basically their only motorcycle. And I'm going to call it a motor scooter because it's almost like, uh, it, I mean, it's not quite a scooter transmission or anything like that. But I did hear from, if you listen to Cleveland Moto, when they first got the first pipe rolling into the States, they did a little test ride and they figured that it had sort of like a, not technically a slipper clutch, but I don't think you have to shift. I mean, I think it's kind of like a scooter. It's got like a... Uh, you know, for whatever reason, the transmission is a little bit more user-friendly than a, a all-out motorcycle. Now, that was brought over here as part of the Grom petition, which I don't know if that word has been used yet. But it's a Grompetitor, just like the, uh, you know, the Kawasaki, uh, the Z-Pro. So the K-Pipe came over and the Grom. So all these hooligans that are looking to tool around on little 125cc bikes got it made. And that's about the only motorcycle, quote, that they have over here, they do have a CK1, which reminds me of the the GW250 from Suzuki. Um, they also have one called the Quanon, which and the Quanon naked, which remind me sort of like if you had like a CBR that was like a two fifty or a one twenty five actually. It reminds me of that. Um, and then the Pulsar and the CK both remind me of like some really crummy Suzuki GW250 and 250F. Um, what the hell was that bike? You know, they're just they're a little naked uh and half fared, you know, beginner bikes, basically. Uh, 125cc, not even freeway legal here in the States. Uh, but that doesn't matter, they don't make them here. So let me get to the point that I was making about them partnering with Kawasaki and just say that Kawasaki's ha- they've they're developing a 650 based on the ER six N and uh, Motorcycle News, they, they released some of the patent drawings. And, you know, they're, these are line drawings. Sometimes they don't always reflect what's going to be uh, the final product. But the interesting thing, this, this uh, patent drawing reveals that they've based a lot of this off the ER6N, uh, like, copied it, basically. It looks like from from these drawings, the motor, the exhaust, and the rear swing arm have been reported by MCN to be, like, literally identical to the to the er6n the the frame is a trellis style compared to like the the uh tube or the twin spar frame the front suspension is a little bit more um you know advanced with a inverted front uh, fork and it's got like some really cool four pot brakes illustrated there um i can't tell you know the the body styling is a little is Way different than the ER6N, but this thing looks pretty titty, you know. And I and, uh, can't wait for this thing to really, if it really does come out to, to see it. Supposedly, um, I mean, if Kimco stays with their pricing and all that, it'd be, this'll be a pretty good bike. And coming into the 650 market, if Honda really does go out, that'll give Kimco, I guess, a foot in the door. I don't think they're going to be competitive with Honda customers or the existing, you know, big three that. But it'll be uh, interesting to note that there will be hopefully maybe a cheaper alternative. Now, also speaking of Kawasaki, I was just looking online. This this ties in great with what I already had written down in notes for days ago. Uh, Kawasaki, their tie-in with Kimco actually comes at a time when Kawasaki themselves are have been wanting to revamp their whole lineup. And I've stated in the past that Kawasaki is either way ahead of their time, just like Suzuki, you know, with stuff that nobody wants, or they're way behind, which is they're getting on board as things are, like, going out of style for the market. Now, the Scrambler trend may have jumped the shark. I mean, I think that the Scrambler and Flat Tracker sort of look is kind of for, at least for custom builders, has kind of come and gone, um, and now that all these OEs are getting on board with it, they may be a little bit late to the game. The retro thing seems to be coming back, though. You know, Yamaha, they've had the the Bolt Cafe Racer, which looks like a polished turd to me. Missed the whole Cafe Racer trend. Doesn't really look like one. Um, then they have the Bolt, which is a cruiser. You know, that'll be around for a while. But then they came out with the XSR900, which actually looks pretty cool to me. It, it does look like a modern retro. And the... Kawasaki is releasing a re- modern retro or supposedly releasing a modern retro that they showcased in Milan. Some of the sketches that I saw for this thing were terrible. It was like bike xf looking, you know, just like a crappy custom drawing, everything hacked off. No rear fender, you know, everything kind of modern, um, not modern, like space age looking. Didn't really look that great. But then I see these new mock-ups of the actual bike and their total renderings. They're not real, but... At least they're not conceptual drawings at this point. They're they're uh makes it look like a an actual retro. And the styling cues kind of mixes the XSR nine hundred with the um BMW R9T, which is very interesting, and uh, and I'm actually writing a post right now to coincide with this episode. I will include a picture there of what I'm talking about. But I think that this thing is kind of, you know, they're jumping onto this retro market right now at the right time before it goes away. This thing looks like it could be uh, half Street Tracker, half maybe Cafe Racer. You know what I mean? And it it doesn't. I'd, it doesn't appear to be modular like the R9T, but then again, who knows what the actual bike's going to look like, but it's pretty cool. It's called the Z900RS. When they launched their conceptual drawings or they, they showcased them at Milan, they were talking about the SC01 and the SC02, which was the sole charger and the spirit charger. Well, uh, you know, Motorcycle News is reporting that apparently this Z900RS was the uh, sole charger concept, what it's actually going to look like when it comes out. They reported it back in May. Now that they were reporting it uh, just a couple days ago, they're saying that it's imminent. It's actually going to be uh, part of their lineup. And Kawasaki has promised 17 new bikes over 2017, and, or no, I'm sorry, 12 brand new motorcycles Uh, through 2017 and 2018. So they they really are going to go through and kind of overhaul their lineup. Now, this thing, the Z900RS, uh, they're supposedly maybe going to be a 675 three-cylinder supercharged retro, possibly named the H1. And if you're familiar with the H1, that was Kawasaki's three-cylinder two-stroke back in the day. I'm not sure what year they came out. I know for sure 1969 uh, maybe in the first year of it, but I know for sure that it may, that didn't make really make sense. But at any rate, that was their like two stroke, you know, hell demon. So they're coming out with a new supercharged three cylinder that's supposedly going to be like a retro. And if it's anything looks at all, like this Z 900 RS, it is fabulous looking. And, uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, I've got the post up kind of pointing out the similarities between this and the R9T. Speaking of the R9T, I really wanted to talk about BMW. I kind of want to, I'm working on the Scrambler at work right now. And I kind of wanted to talk about it a little bit. Speaking of the whole cafe retro theme and all this and that direct competitors being like the XSR 900, um, maybe this new Kawasaki, if we see it coming out, I'm going to be paying attention to, you know, ICMA and all that stuff that's going to be coming up, uh, in a few months. Um, so that the, ducati scrambler you know everything everything that kind of is competing with bmw is a little bit smaller you know they don't quite go up to the you know the uh it's a it's a 1200 it's 1170 actually cc's uh air and oil cooled boxer twin which is you know the only one of the crazy things that bmw is kind of moving away from the boxers except for with the r9t now the r9t The R, of course, you know, signifying the the boxer twin, and the 9T is a little play on words for 90, which is 90 years of Motorod, which is uh, uh, motorcycle production from BMW. Now... The 9T was supposed to harken back to the days of like a more simplistic, uh, you know, and I remember when this thing came out. It's been around on the market since 2014, but uh, the there was a concept bike in either like 2010 or 2012 at the Motor Show. And I remember seeing this thing and thinking of how beautiful it was. It was super stripped down. Um, just the way it looked was was amazing, and to see it there in person, uh, you know, I was I was just waiting for this thing to come out, and then of course when the production bike comes out, it's a little bit more, uh, it's a clean, you know, a little bit cleaned up. Um, of course everything has to be different a little bit to be street legal, but when the R9T came out, it was totally modular. You could buy, I don't know if you still can, but you could buy accessories that made it not street legal. You could bob that uh, rear. Subframe all the way off, and they made the seat that just stuck on the little frame that comes out from the back of the motor. If you're not familiar with BMWs, the motor is actually part of the frame, and then on the front half, there's not like a cradle that that goes around the motor. Like the mo- the motor's there in the front where the steering head connects is like one frame, and then the back where the person sits on it is a second frame. And on the 9T, there's actually a third subframe that goes under the back if you have a pillion uh you know passenger foot pegs and rear body now the 9t had like this little cafe hump that you could buy and uh the subframe if you wanted to put the pillion uh footrests down there and if you didn't you could bob that off you can get a back seat uh that just barely sticks down uh, above the It wasn't even street legal because there was nowhere for a license plate or turn signals to mount. So it said right on the catalog, not for street use, you know, show use only. Basically, they were making this thing for the custom builder or the customizer, you know, not not necessarily the person that has a garage to make stuff, but somebody that wanted to be able to customize this without having to make a bunch of bespoke parts and have a garage to do all the stuff in. You could buy and bolt and inter- interchange and swap and it was really cool. So when the scrambler came out, I thought, okay, they're taking this platform and since it is so modular, they're going to bring it out for this market, you know, for for the hipster market basically. Now the scrambler comes with a brown seat, so you know, that's directly marketing to the, uh, the hip look right now. Definitely going for the aesthetic. It also has standard forks, which I was, thought was really weird because the R9T has inverted forks, which are uh, a little bit better valved and stuff from what I understand. But of course, since we're going for the look here and, and the aesthetic, not necessarily the function, the Scrambler has standard forks with fork gaiters and pretty much everything else is a 9T. The subframe's the same. The exhaust is a little bit different. Now, on the 9T, when it came out and you would look through the accessory catalog, there was like three or four different exhausts that you could get for it. And each one had a different mounting point where you would have to buy a different set of brackets to mount it low, mid, high, or like a two high or one high, something like that. I I forget exactly how many uh, different configurations there were, but there were quite a few. And you had to get a different subframe for each one. So the Scrambler comes stock with the... uh, Two high pipes going back, and it mounts to the subframe. And I think if you want to delete the subframe, uh, I'm not 100% sure you can do it, but I know that there is like a bracket where you can get like a different exhaust. So they made this thing totally modular. It's actually a pretty cool idea. For me, I'm still going to go back to what I've always said about OEM scramblers from this era, is that even the BMW, I mean, sorry, the Ducati, they're a little bit heavy to actually be scrambling shit on. You know what I mean? Like back in the day, if you had a 500cc scrambler, that was quite big. You know, we're talking 175 to 350 was the perfect size, perfect weight, just a couple hundred pounds. Uh, They didn't really call motocross motocross yet. So outdoor races were typically either called scrambles or, you know, sometimes they called them trials depending on the, You know how slow you were going, but motocross for the most part was called scrambles. Then you had hair scrambles, which is like more of like desert racing, but nobody was going out on on, you know, fire roads. That was just called riding back in the day. You would, you you know, there was very few paved roads here and there. So, I don't know. The going for this aesthetic really, you know, that's all it is to me is an aesthetic, but since I was working on the scrambler at work and noticing th- these kind of things that BMW has parted with, their their standard ways, you know, like no tele no um, parallelogram front end or no uh telelever front end, parallel rear end, all this stuff. It's just like they actually are trying to go for a this aesthetic and to do it they're kind of going away from the technology that they currently have in other news speaking of bmw and technology bmw has a new technology that's going to be available on bikes beginning in 2017 the technology is called iec and it stands for intelligent emergency call most of what i'm going to Tell you right now comes directly from a BMW uh, press release uh, from a couple months ago. And this is kind of cool. Everything I've said about technology and um, (laughs) how I'm like not really for it, you know, all these sparkly, farkly, wango tango stuff that comes out. This is one thing that I think could help you. And I think that there's already companies that do this anyway. So this is just specific to BMW. But, uh, you know, this is straight quoted from their um, press release, quote, getting help to the scene of an accident or emergency as fast as possible can save lives. This applies especially to motorcyclists. For this reason, BMW Motored has developed the optional intelligent emergency call system, which is intended to get help to the accident or emergency scene as fast as possible. End quote. So basically they're they've done some tests and they've they've had this in cars, I believe, since nineteen ninety nine. And in 2007, the BMW group extended like this safety system by establishing a cross-border call center. And from 2018, it says it'll become mandatory on new cars, but they're starting to offer it as a factory option beginning in 2017 on motorcycles. Now, it, it already comes in cars and i think it is it's an option in cars and like they said here it's going to be mandatory in 2018 but it's similar to the onstar the only the only difference being is that bmw manages this now the according to their press uh release here it has been tested you know it's already been implemented and tested and has existed in cars for quite a while so it's uh known to work they've set up the infrastructure and continue to to set up more infrastructure um as this becomes mandatory so according to they're already tested uh you know already out in the field they've tested this over the years since it's been in cars and they said that uh Using this system gets response times down to like 40 to 50% faster than previous. And it was used for the first time in BMW cars or automobiles in 1999. So I mean, they've had plenty of time for this to go go ahead and be tested in the field. So let's get to the bike version here. So right now, it's going to be like in an in a optional, you know, this isn't going to be like, it'll probably be like ABS, where they make it standard on bikes at some point. And if it is going to be mandatory in cars in 2018, who knows how soon bikes are going to follow afterwards. But there's three ways that this thing works. Now, the, there, it takes three scenarios into account. I'll get into the sensors and stuff later, but let's just talk about triggering it. So the first scenario is that this thing gets automatically triggered in the case of a really bad fall or a heavy collision. And in that case, the emergency call is automatically triggered with, you know, zero delay. It sends a message to the BMW call center and the rider is taken care of by the call center via an audio connection until the emergency service arrives. So if you're laying there, somebody will be talking to you the whole time. Even if there's no response. So if you're laying there and you, you got the wind knocked out of you or you're so dazed or hurt that you can't uh, reply, they'll stay there and they'll talk to you. And if they hear some groaning, they'll probably be like, OK, listen, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And if there's no response, they'll keep trying, you know, keep talking to you. And there's also an acoustic signal. And the reason I think this is important and the whole reason I think this idea is actually kind of cool is if you're in a car and you go off into a ditch, sometimes, you know, depending even in the states and, and rural parts of the world, you can't that you're you're in a jungle or a forest. You know, I'm thinking of like eastern United States and Canada um, or anywhere in South America, lots of Australia, things like that, where you go off into the bush on accident especially on a motorcycle and you tumble and slide down into a drainage ditch or a bush or into some a grove of trees a car you're more likely to be able to see part of it at least you know even if it's like dense foliage or a deep ditch or a culvert or anything like that and and even if the car is flipped upside down it can be hard to see and luckily the wheels kind of stand out against uh you know everything else but if if you're like all the way you know in into the Ditch or like into the bush, let's say it's going to be real hard for people to find you on a motorbike, especially if you went off the side of a cliff or something like that, or like down a steep hill. So there's an acoustic signal that goes off. So the whole time you're laying there, if you're not responsive, maybe you're trapped, maybe you're hurt and you're away from the bike. At least they'll be able to find you via the acoustic signal and the, the representatives will keep talking to you and make sure that you're okay and let you know that helps on the way. In the second scenario, it can get triggered in a minor fall or a minor collision. And in that case, the emergency call is only triggered after 25 seconds before it sends a message to the call center. And if no help's necessary, like maybe you you drop the bike or you, know, you tip over or something and it sets it off, you can push a button to deactivate it. That's why it waits 25 seconds. And at the press of a button, it'll cancel it if the call does not cancel, though, it's going to initiate that what they call the rescue chain, where the BMW call center is uh, contacted and they try to keep in touch with you, and the acoustic signal goes off. Now, the reason this is good is in case maybe you have heat stroke or a stroke, or you hurt your leg, like you. Uh, I was I've been watching some videos where guys go out and they tear their ACL and they fall over off the bike, and that would trigger it. And in that case. You know, you don't push the button. Maybe you fall off the bike and you're holding your knee, or you get the like I said, you're you're dazed because you have heat stroke, or maybe a heart attack, or anything like that. It's going to go ahead and get that rescue motion and process, and that's when you don't want the button pushed. You know what I mean? That's you're probably too busy dealing with yourself to push the button. I had a boss whose friend. I don't know how long ago this was, but I do know that it was before. Uh, Cell phones and GPS and all that stuff, especially for, uh, you know, just recreational travel was popular, fell over out in the desert and had a bike fall on him. I forget if it was a GS 1100 uh, or if it was a KTM, but whatever it was, uh, the bike trapped his leg and the guy died out there. Not because he was like fatally injured in the crash, but because the bike fell on him and hurt his leg and he couldn't get up and couldn't get out the way he fell into a like a rut or something. And he just couldn't get leverage to get it out. And with the heat and everything else just sapped his energy. That's the case where it's a minor fall and you would want, you know, the signal to get sent out. So if it is seriously a tip over or you went down on some ice in a corner or cold tires in the driveway or You know, coming out of a driveway and it tips and you press that button, you know, no big deal. But if not, if it's something else, then they're going to initiate the rescue chain. Now, the third scenario is manual triggering of the button. And there's a little SOS button and it's actually covered. So you're not going to accidentally hit it. But it is nice that it's covered so that you can flip it up and push it within that 25 seconds if, like I said, in scenario two, you just have a tip over or something. So if it's triggered manually, then there in, – in this case, you could be calling for a writer, like a friend uh, – you're with a friend and they go down and they don't have a BMW or they don't have this option installed, you can call for them. Or if you come across a scene of a car crash, you can, you can use it for that. So in, any other thing, when you do the, uh, when you trigger it, it'll put you in touch with the uh, call center and then they'll figure out what's going on and figure why you needed needed uh, the emergency, uh, systems. Now in all of these cases, I believe there's a light on the dash that turns on that tells you if uh, that it's on. So maybe if you're knocked slightly unconscious or you're out of breath, you can see the lights on so you know there's a call been made. So while you're kind of tending to yourself or getting your marbles back, you know that you're in good hands. So that's a really nice feature as well, as well as the audible signal to let you know that um, you know people are going to be looking for you and they're going to know where to look. So here, how does it work? Like what if you accidentally hit a pothole or you jump a curb or something. Is it going to go off and start making this ungodly noise and call for responders? Well, that's where BMW's technology comes in. And I remember before IMU was a hot term, you know, a couple of years ago at the uh, motorcycle show, they had BMW already had these technologies going into the S 1000 RR that used basically an IMU and it used bank angle sensors and speed sensors on the wheels and a uh, lean well bank angle sensor and, and leaning sensor, but it, it had different like accelerometers where it could, it could, uh, it could determine height as if like you're coming over a rise in a road. So it could, it could determine Uh, altitude, pitch, yaw, roll, lean, all that stuff, right? All these crazy things that it could, that it could determine at one time. And then of course, wheel speed, motor output, um, fuel injection, all this shit is going into the computer and just telling it, Hey, blah, 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 blah. So pardon me. So when you have all that stuff at your, um, disposal, it goes into, part of this intelligent emergency call system so that they recognize that, Hey, there's the lean angle sensor is at this, but the wheel speed is still at this. You're in a corner. So it's not going to say the bike's tipped over. Uh, he's there. Person's not moving here. She is falling off. So there's also an accelerometer that determines, you know, the, the, um, basically that's how they, that's how they know for scenario two, if it's a slight crash, it can determine that it was a slight crash because of the rate that the accelerometer went off. That's how it knows you dropped the bike versus that you like slammed into something hard, like got hit head on by a car or something like that in scenario one where it's detecting a major crash. It uses that accelerometer data. So... um They use all of this technology that's already laden. You know, the bikes are totally laden with it when they come out to control the active stability control and the traction control and ABS rain modes and all this different rider modes that are already mapped into the bike. They combine all of that with this emergency call so that it can tell uh, it can help it better tell that. Hey, this person's jumping a curb or (laughs) like that dude that hit the dog or the guy that jumped the carpet recently, like, Hey, they just popped over something in the road and, uh, or they hit a big pothole, you know, so it's not going to say, uh, you know, basically that you, you rammed into a pothole. That must've been the front end of a sit Honda civic. So now let's call. So it, it uses all that technology that they already have integrated into the bike to be able to assess the damage. And then of course there's that manual button. So you can always push that if something really did happen and it's just detecting that you hopped a curb or something like that. So I thought that was something that was really cool. And that's just one more example of BMW up in the ante and, uh, pushing standards for, you know, bike safety and, uh, interaction between humans and whatnot. Another interesting thing I thought about this, uh, story was that it's also, I'm gu- guessing that they're going off, uh, either serial number from the bike that calls in like making a, making a number that's like dedicated, like a phone number basically for the bike or an ID number so that when they call in, they know who's on the bike so that it'll tell them if you're Danish to go ahead and, you know, put in, if you're from Denmark, let's send route the call to a Danish speaker. If you're from the Netherlands, let's route it to a Dutch speaker. If you're in Germany, Germany, uh, let's route it to a German or if you're German, I think it goes off of, uh, the sales data by who, who the bike is registered to or who bought it or who activated the, uh, the carrier that that's who it'll route it to so that you're also not getting some guy, uh, speaking Spanish to you if you've crashed, you know, in France or something like that. So that's another thing that's pretty cool that I thought, uh, was interesting about the system. And the last thing that was pretty interesting about it is that you don't need to have a particular carrier. You don't need to have I'm not even sure who the European carriers are, but like you know, AT&T or Sprint, you don't have to go with a specific uh, manufacturer, phone manufacturer or wireless carrier in order to initiate this call. So I guess it's similar to OnStar. I don't think you need to subscribe to a specific uh, mobile carrier to get OnStar to you. You just have to subscribe to OnStar. So I think it's sort of the same thing. So that's pretty cool. I guess we'll see that rolling out in 2017. And um, I haven't seen anything... I haven't seen anything come out of BMW yet uh, for 2017, but uh, I'll keep you posted when I do. So, hey, for those of us that still have a nice riding season ahead of us, uh, you know, the the year is quickly drawing to a close here, which is kind of freaky. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention is let's just get out there and do some rides, man. This weekend is perfect. So if you're in New York, this week, uh, the 14th through the 17th has been the 4th annual International Motorcycle Film Festival. And so tonight and tomorrow uh, are going to be the last last nights for it. If you'd like to go to uh, get tickets or anything like that or find out what's going on, go to MotorcycleFilmFestival.com. That's the easiest place to find out what is on the remainder of their calendar. Uh, Saturday, September 17th, the ninth annual Venice Vintage Motorcycle Rally put on by the VVMC, which is the Venice Vintage Motorcycle Club, is going to be happening. They are going to be basically from 9 to 6 tomorrow there's going to be a lot going on. So they got music. They got a group ride photo happening at 10. Uh, the Venice vintage, uh, motorcycle rally, nine gates open at 11. Um, at 11 AM, they have music, uh, Eleven fifty-five greetings and announcements, 12 music at one. The bike contest starts, um, at four, there's the miss Venice vintage pinup contest and at six there's the raffle and bike giveaway it's basically going to be on dell avenue in Ven- in uh, venice at 2150 dell avenue so just go down there and basically check it out look look for all the great stuff that's happening down there this thing's been going on for a while um i might have mentioned on a previous show that uh, shannon the founder of or at least who I know as the founder of the VVMC uh, has been at that location for quite a while, doing a lot of stuff. So check that out. Uh, September 24th and 25th, the Deus bike build off is going on. If you need to find that out, go to DeusCustoms.com. This is their boundless enthusiasm uh, bike build off and it's Saturday, September 24th. Uh, uh, Registrations are still open, I think. So, they are also have a location in Venice, as well as Sydney, Bali, Milan, and Tokyo. Uh, only one of those places in California. I think Tokyo is in like next to Terre Haute, Indiana or something like that. So at any rate, yeah, that's going on. If you want to check that out, like I said, DeusCustoms.com, you can see, uh, I think you can vote there. Uh, I'm not going to look too much into it because I'm not a hipster. Anyway, what? Uh, The 24th and 25th of September also are the Victory Demo Days. So the Southern California Motorcycles at SoCalMotorcycles.com is where you can find info for this. It's the... They're basically in Brea, so Southern California Motorcycles is a little little shop down there, and they're going to have victories for you to uh, test out at Cook's Corner. If you're not familiar with Cook's Corner, it, it's a little bar. Uh, well, it's a little part of. <laughs> Basically, it's a little bar in Tribuco Canyon, which is like a little part of Santiago Canyon. So that's if you're familiar with where Born Free is, you probably know where the Southern California motorcycles are going to be at. So go down there, test ride a victory. Um, What can I say? If you like victories, go for it. The SoCal Cycle Swap Meet, that's also coming up. If you need information for that, go to com. They have a swap meet coming up September 25th. Let me look at my calendar here. One of the next ones? All right, so basically this is a once-a-month a month deal. Um, September 25th, October 23rd, November 13th and December 4th. Those are going to round out the rest of the year. Uh, lots of good stuff. There's always sort of a bike show. You all, you never know what you're going to see there. And there's this all sorts of, um, really cool stuff to scoop up. So check that out. If you get a chance, what else is coming up? The white lightning camp out. I just learned of this one actually, uh, about a week ago. Or- two ago maybe a week ago so the white lightning camp out is going to be put on by lucky wheels garage it's happening october 1st in ojai if you need info on this go to luckywheelsgarage.com it's sponsored by pabst uh, at wild pack animal dais rsd iron and resin uh, british customs moto chop shop A lot of other hipster-ish sort of stuff. The Velvets MC, Spirit Lake Cycles, and of course, Lucky Wheels Garage. Um, You know, wear your Hawaiian shirt and your high uh, striped socks with your OP corduroy shorts while you're riding your CB750 bobber or custom uh, chopper out there. They're going to have camp games, a raffle, a talent show, dance, beer, and barbecue. I don't know why I'm making fun of this shit, because it actually sounds pretty fun. And also, one of the sponsors is New Century Motorcycles, who is in Alhambra. They are a BMW dealer, and uh, I used to live in Alhambra for a little bit, and yeah... That was pretty fun living there next to New Century. Um Babes on Moto seven is celebrating and documenting the Los Angeles female motorcycle scene. If you need to know about this, I think you can go to facebook.com and look up Babes on Motos. Um, the hashtag is ESMBBOM7. So I not 100%. Oh, the Eastside Moto Babes. That's that's who's uh sponsoring this. That's who ESMB is. So yeah, Babes on Moto 7 uh, October 2nd from 2 to 6. Go to Facebook and check it out or just search the hashtag ESMBBOM7 for Eastside Moto Babes, Babes on Moto 7. Yeah. There's also something else going on on the eighth. This is a busy turn out to be a busy weekend for motorcycles. It's the Burn Ride, and they're going to have basically a ride for burn victims and SoCal Burn Ride check-in and registration and breakfast at the West Hills Hospital, seventy-three hundred Medical Center Drive in West Hills, California. Forty bucks for the rider, twenty for the passenger kickstands up at 10 a.m. And I'm not 100% sure if it's going to be a poker run, um, but I know it's going to be a run for a good cause. And they're going to be riding out to Ventura uh, enjoying some of the canyon roads and the Pacific Coast Highway. And then they're going to end up at the Sagebrush Cantina. Sagebrush Cantina is also a pretty legendary uh, spot basically to end up at. So that's pretty cool. Um, Deus on uh, October 8th, From 6pm to 9pm, there's going to be the release of a book, I think it's for classic vehicles, yeah, pre-1916 motorcycles, and it's called Timeless American, and it's all pre-1916 Japanese motorcycles. All right, so there's something else happening a little bit sooner than that. Uh, If you are not familiar with the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride, that's actually happening on the 25th. Let me look. Yeah, the 25th. That's just uh, the weekend after next. And that is a ride, worldwide ride for uh, prostate cancer awareness and research and funding. And so uh, all you got to do is dress up like uh, somebody like Charlie Chaplin or something like that or Buster Keaton and get on a motorcycle. Can't be a crotch rocket, So they don't want your money. Uh, if you have prostate cancer and you ride like a sport bike or a race bike uh, or an ADV bike or anything like that, you know, stuff that really uh, you can get prostate cancer from riding from just being having such big balls, then they don't want your money. Ironically. That's what it's all about is dressing up like a hipster and being ironic. So they don't want your money. If you ride any of those type of bikes in most places there, if you go to the website, I think the rule says, um, you know, must be a hipster bike, but at any rate, you could still donate to the cause. Um, you can borrow a, a friends bike that may be a distinguished person and, uh, you know, dress up and ride along and, uh, or just meet up at the event and give me your money and say, Hey, I know I wrote in here on my, uh, my KTM, but, uh, I do have prostate cancer and I'd like it to be fixed. So here's my money. So yeah, that's kicking off worldwide on the 25th. What else is happening? Something's happening tomorrow. Cots. Oh wait, no, something's happening on Saturday. Cots. King of the streets, baby. And I talked to our own nitrous Chris, Steve Sime, Steve Sing Syme. And, um, he said that, uh, I asked him if he was nervous about cots at all. And he said, nervous, I make people nervous. So apparently he's not nervous whatsoever. So I wish all of the, uh, we're topio people, the WIR top 10, good luck tomorrow. And, uh, Or good luck on Saturday, rather. I'm sorry, I keep saying tomorrow. So, actually, when this comes out, it will be tomorrow, probably. So, at any rate, good luck for you guys. And uh, I hope you guys spray them down, dude. Spray down the house. Spray them in the face like the cockroaches they are. And uh, make them beg for forgiveness. Um, What else is going on this weekend? I don't know what's happening this weekend or next weekend. I know I'm going to get out. Hey, I do have a request. If you guys have a Yamaha SR 250 or know anybody that does, can you get some good stories, um, have them contact the show via Facebook, uh, or via the email, even via Twitter, anything like that. Let me give you those contacts. The, the email for the show is creative writing podcast at gmail.com. The Facebook is facebook.com forward slash creative writing podcast. And the Twitter is at creative writer. Just, Get in touch with me. I have a bone to pick with another podcast that recently mentioned the 1980 and 81 Yamaha Exciter SR250. And uh, this happens to be the bike that I love and ride like every chance I get. Now, I've owned way bigger bikes and way faster bikes, and I've owned way bigger and slower bikes and I've owned bikes that couldn't do half the stuff that this bike does like split lanes on a really tight road and uh, go up dirt roads, you know, and dirt, climb dirt Hills, like a dirt bike. Um, There's no way some of the bigger bikes that I've owned could ever make it even, and especially the more powerful bikes, just too much power. So uh and too wide and too you know just the, the enjoyment that this thing i it is a little bit ironically named the exciter because no 250 is really that exciting uh unless you're on like a 250 dirt bike or you're on an electric bike that's like the equivalent of 250 uh trust me 250s can be pretty exciting and uh so yeah this thing it, it yeah you know it might be a uh bike that people would not want to be seen on who maybe have ego issues or small penis issues or no penis issues. I have no idea. But yeah, uh, this bike got put through the ringer on another podcast. I believe it was last week. And um, yeah, I am going to say that I'm going to prove that this bike, out of all the bikes I've owned, is the reason I've kept this bike. Not only because it was my first street bike, but also because this bike has done more crap with me on it than I've done on any other bike I've owned except for the bike uh, that I wheelied through a fence. Now that was pretty sweet. But uh, yeah, at any rate, anybody SR250, mostly this is probably going to be in Australia because I I know that there's like a huge uh, market still going for them over there. And South America, perhaps, I know they still, they have a classic version that had like an upgraded disc brake and I think they made them up until like the late 2000s. But we're talking about The baby. If you consider the SR500 to be the daddy and the SR400 to be the mommy, this is the SR250, the baby. And you know what? Uh, I don't know what. Nobody puts baby in the corner. That's what. So, yeah. I'm going to... I'm going to... I'm just doing right now. So, at any rate... I actually did a burnout on this thing the other day. I'm getting some, some video clips of, together of me doing stuff that people on bikes four times the size could never do. So I'm going to prove the world wrong. Oh, yeah. You know what's going to be coming up next is this week's DIY tip. Now, this week's tip comes from good old Nitra Steve Sim. Uh, I was talking to him via the, uh, internets the other day and he sent me a video that I'm going to try to upload to the site so you can see. But I said, Mr. Mr. Nitrous, what is your secret? Your little DIY hack, if you will. And he said, well, in his eyes, cleanliness is next to godliness. And, I happen to agree, even though I'm a more of like, do what I say, not as I do guy. Cause although I try to keep my little section of the garage, like organized and neat, I've moved so many times that things get put here and there and, you know, I have to make everything mobile to some degree and there's no way to keep up with everything and, and keep, you know, once I get one good setup, it's like, I hate this house. Let's move. All right. Well, you know, good thing we rent. Cause if we, if we had to, uh buy a home every single time we moved, it would just, maybe that'll keep us in place actually. But at any rate, cleanliness next to godliness for sure. Right? So when you're working, don't you hate when you set a tool down and then you go and you look, and then you look back and it's not there and you're like, well, where is it? And it, oh my, well, it's not there because you like put it next to a pile of crap and it blended in, or you put it on top of something precarious and it fell in You know, you had your uh, cylinder heads off and now it's down in the bottom of a crankcase because that's what you get for setting a socket on top of a, you know, crankcase when you have like the heads off or the cylinder and the pistons out and all that great stuff, right? So, or you don't have a place to set it down because you have so much shit on your workbench, or you don't have a workbench and you just because you just have everything strewn all over, or you have a workbench and you can't see it because you have so much stuff strewn all over, and you can't even work on your bike because you have to. Take off 50 years of dry cleaning, kids clothes, old shoes, that old kayak you never use, a inner tube and you don't even have a pool or you live next to a lake. And who knows why you're keeping this old Richard Simmons life-size cutout. But you got all the shit piled on top of your bike. And anytime you want to work on it, you just kind of look at it with your hands on your hips. Your mouth is open a little bit, kind of slack-jawed. And you just go inside and watch football instead. Cleanliness, my friends, is next to godliness. And one of the things that Chris sent in that video was his little creation, which is a tool rack. And he is so clean and meticulous that his bench looks beautiful. Now, he doesn't lay paper down on his bench like I suggested uh, a couple shows ago to keep your bench clean and to clean up your work area afterward. What he does is he has like some no-slip packing mat or something down, like a no-slip Uh, packing foam and that way if you drop a piston or you drop a connecting rod or you drop an egg uh, none of this stuff gets marred up or chipped or broken it will kind of protect edges of stuff and it'll protect those nicks and it'll protect stuff from getting scored and then you know when you assemble your you put your cylinder uh, head back on or slide your cylinders down your jugs down it uh, that's nicked up piston or that nicked up ring or bent ring doesn't score the inside of your cylinder now. And you're like, ah, shit. So at any rate, he not only has that down there for cleanliness, but also for protection of the parts. And I thought that was a great idea. Uh, although several layers of paper, like I have is somewhat impact protective. Once I get down to like one or two layers, not so much. And everyone knows that I work only with super fine, um, ceramic so yeah that'll shatter my ceramic allen wrench would just break into a bajillion pieces if I drop it so at any rate not only does he do that keeps everything clean and neat and if you were to look at some of his pictures of his builds you would just see like dude everything's laid out there like a kit like an instruction manual it also makes stuff that much easier to assemble And if you disassemble something that you've never assembled before, don't be scared. Don't be scared to get into something that you've never done before. As long as you have a manual there to help you out, to put it back the right way or to tell you, hey, dude, this is a counter uh, board screw or whatever. So when you're turning it left to unscrew it, you're actually going to strip it, you know. So, you know, if you're doing something and you're not too sure why it's not coming off this or that that 's great, but don 't be afraid to do this because if you have everything clean and neat, like Mr. Sime, you can just lay everything out in the order that you took it off and then put it back the same way that 's the other benefit of being neat and clean and The third benefit is that you won 't lose your tools and his little cr- creation that he made is basically like a swivel tray, and what he does is it frees him up to be moving around and to uh, not have to move a tool to set something down maybe you're picking up a whole motor to set it down and ah shit, you're, you got five hand tools. You got a couple of ratchets and a socket and, uh, you know, a a adjustable wrench or some shit up there. Who knows? Screwdriver. You got to like move all that stuff to the side before you put this, you know, 150 pound motor down. Well, If you have that stuff up on a tray out of the way, you have it available to you right at your hand level and it's out of the way so you're free to move around on the bench. So that's the second thing that I thought was great about his uh, little video that he showed me and I will try to send it to you as well. So absolutely, cleanliness not only helps you be uh, protect your parts and protect your stuff and, you know, you can always clean up a mess if you get grease and oil or old if you're taking apart an old bike and trying to fix it and Lord knows all the road grime and everything that comes off of that stuff and just goes all over the place, chunks of, you know, caked on grease and oil and, and old dirt and everything like that, that stuff's easily brushed off. And, and and like I said, if you have paper down, just wrap it up and throw it in the trash. Now- That will help it keep clean. It'll help you, uh, the cleanliness of your area will help you actually get in there. And before you have to clean out the garage for three hours to work on your crap, you just go straight in and do it. So that's the second benefit. Third benefit is hopefully you're not dropping your parts down on a tool and chipping them or breaking them or scratching them or marring a surface that needs to be smooth like a cylinder or even the top of a piston or anything like that. The fourth benefit is that you'll never have tools in the way. If you keep all your tools hung up and uh, set on a shelf or hung up on little tool holders, you'll never be looking for them. Next time you need them, when you reach your hand out and it's missing and it's like a little goblin came in, at the tool gnome that comes in and steals all your tools from where you last set them down, either you need to take fish oil for your memory or you need to get cleaner. And it's a lot easier to get cleaner than it is to get smarter and remember shit. So especially the older you get. So yeah, this, all of this will help you be more efficient. And then when you get in there, like I said, if you're taking stuff apart that you've never done before, just lay it out in a row. You have a nice clean area that's uh, free of debris and free of clutter, and you can just lay it straight out just the way you disassembled it. And that way, when you put it back together, you can put it back together the exact same way you took it off. And then all you need the manual for is the torque specs. So, yeah, that is my DIY tech tip for the week. And it comes via Nitrous Singsime. Wish him luck at King of the Streets and I think it's Union Grove, even though they say Chicago's King of the Streets. So, uh, yeah, that was it. That's just about it for the show, too. It's gone on long enough. You've had to listen to me blather and one last thing is that I know I blathered on about my carbs for like four episodes. I just wanted to say that's because I did these ride reports back to back sort of. So it's been a little while. I got my car all cleaned up and fixed up. It's back on the bike and I'm ready to cruise going into this weekend. All right. Catch y'all on the flip side. I need a catchphrase. Let me go to the repository and find one. I'll be right back. This week's sign off is going to be keep the rubber up. And the blubber down. Whoops, the other way around. Keep the blubber up and the rubber down, folks. Here's this week's sorry list. Let's see if I can do this week by memory. Creative Writing would like to apologize to the following. Caltrans. California Energy Commission. Uh, Loop Detectors. (laughs) Paving and (laughs) Roadwork. Sherman Oaks. Studio City. The Valley and Valley Girls. We'd like to say sorry to... Uh, Southern California Roadways. <clears throat> Creative Writing, we'd like to also say we're sorry to... Flyin' Brian Smith, number 42, and Jared Meese and Brad Baker, A Flat Track. The Appeals Process and the Appeals Board. We'd like to apologize to... Honda, Kawasaki, Suzuki, Hayasung, Kimco. The Grom. Sorry to the Long Beach Swap Meet. Sorry to BMW, the scrambler, the R9T, anything else BMW as well as their technology, such as IEC. Intelligent Emergency Call We'd like to apologize to the Yamaha SR250 Exciter and all the Yamaha SRs Sorry to Kawasaki and the Z900 RS and any turbocharged or supercharged variants that may result in the future Sorry to EICMA Intermott, Milan, anything, any other show that I'm forgetting. Like, not AIM, though. We'd also like to apologize to Shy towns Cots or King of the Streets and WIR Top Ten Participants. Go, guys. Sorry to Michelle Mankiewicz and Nitrous Chris Singsheim, a.k.a. Producers Steves. And Stretch from the Stock is for Squares podcast or any podcast called Stock is for Subarus. Sorry to the founders of CODs2. And anyone who listened to the entirety of this show, your IQ dropped by about 13 points. And uh, we're sorry. We'll catch you next week. Peace. What else was I going to talk about? Oh, boy. Lost my brain. Gets a hell of a lot of... of, um, I need to stop... <clears throat> is r for the boxer motor that's what they call the parallel you know the parallel flat twin <laughs> the parallel flat twin so must must of what i'm going to or for that matter um i don't know whatever girls have this not small penis issues tanaka tanaka bodaka bodaka for instance For 10 cents, oofty-goofty would allow a man to (laughs) kick him. Oofty-goofty! For 10 cents, oofty-goofty would allow a man to kick him, is what you just said. Yes. Okay. I just want (laughs) to... Poor little ooft.